the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're talking today with best-selling author Ray Comfort. His latest book is called How to Be Free from the Fear of Death, newly released by Broad Street Publishing. You can get more information, order the book online through Ray's ministry at livingwaters.com, livingwaters.com. We'll tell you more about that again a little bit later on in tonight's program. It strikes me, Ray, as you mentioned about the example of the the waitress at the coffee shop who comes in, you know, to her uh, job there, and one of the uh, tables is filled with a bunch of very wealthy businessmen, but she has no fear, no intimidation, because she knows she's got something that they want, coffee and a menu and some lunch. <laughs> and, and, it, and it strikes me, as I mentioned just before the break, that at the end of the day, rich or poor, educated or uneducated, powerful or just the average Joe, in the end, death is really the ultimate equalizer, isn't it? And it's actually very good to have a fear of death. Let me tell you why. If you're going to jump out of a plane, you're fearful, and it's the fear that causes you to cling to the parachute. So when we have fears, they can either be negative or a fear that has torment, or they can be a fear that drives us closer to the Lord. You know, the Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Um, Some people think that's just a reverence. I think it's a little bit more than that. the psalmist says, my heart trembles for fear of you. One big difference I found when I came to the U.S. was that the police over here have guns. In New Zealand, when I was here 30, 33 years ago, um, they had sticks. And if there was a criminal that was naughty, they'd hit him with a stick. Over here, they'd just shoot them. Um, so that's what I noticed when I first came here. I'd be open there preaching, and a police officer would come up to me. And as he was walking towards me, I would immediately say to myself, he has a gun. If I move too quickly with my hands, he could shoot me because he wants to get home tonight. So I always say, yes, sir, no, sir, you want me to move? How quickly would you like me to move, sir? Because I fear the police. It's more than just a reverence. I fear what they can do to me. And, the, and, and Jesus said, fear not him who has power to kill your body and do no more, but fear him who has power to kill your body and cast your soul into hell. Fear him. That's more than just a reverence. That's a fear of what God can do if you die in your sins. And I, I say this with all the earnestness I can muster. I'd far rather fall onto the face of the sun than to fall into the hands of the living God. Let me just share something about the fear of God that is so ministered to me. When I was about 16, this was uh, four years, six years before I became a Christian, I found myself out in the dark in long grass behind a dance hall with a pretty young lady. I was 16 years old, and my, as with my intentions as we lay in that long grass were not honorable. And then she said something to me that put the fear of God in me. It was just five little words, I think. She just said as we lay there, she said, you know what? God's watching us. And I went, oh, I, I hardly believed in God, but the fear of God filled my heart, and I just said, it's just like a bucket of cold water hit me. I said, let's just go back inside. And I looked back, and as a non-Christian, the fear of God 
did me a favor. It stopped me doing that which I knew was wrong. And so we need to cultivate the fear of God because the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and it says the fear of God causes men to depart from evil. So the best favor you can do is let the fear of death drive you to the foot of the cross and then fear God to keep you from uh, having anything to do with sin because sin and death go hand in hand. There's another aspect of this, Ray, that I'd like to have you kind of unfold for us, and that is that some people that not only fear just the notion of death, they, they because we oftentimes don't know what the process is going to be like, and of course it's different for all of us, and if you're ill, death comes slowly. If you are fortunate enough to fall asleep and not wake up, you don't even know that it's happened until you start to see Christ on the other side. Uh, but but oftentimes a precursor in, in many cases is illness, something that is debilitating. And so there tends to be, as a precursor to death, degrees of suffering and pain. Um, modern medicine, of course, helps to control all of that, but not not, a, not in, in its entirety. And so uh, walk us down this, this road, if you would, as to how we can understand aspects of suffering. Why does God allow it? And, and what can we learn from it? Well, suffering is a mystery. Job questioned God as to why he let him suffer. He was very courageous and filled with faith for about 30 or so chapters. And then he started doing what I would have done in chapter 2, he started whining. He said, I want to talk with God. I want to, you know, have a chat with him and get this sorted out. And God appeared to him. And when God appeared to him, um, he immediately put his hand on his mouth and said, you know, woe is me, I'm undone. That was Isaiah, but I can't remember his exact words. But he realized that he had sinned against God, and he had no right to question God when it came to suffering in that sense. So for the Christian, all we can do is fall back on that safety net scripture all things work together for good to those that love God and accord according to His purposes. So when I go through suffering, and I did recently with kidney stones, it was just horrific, I tippy-toed. I looked above the suffering to the promise that God was working things out for my good, and it sure made me look forward to a new heavens and a new earth when there's no disease, pain, suffering, death, dandruff, or dentists. So that's the hope the Christian is God. Um, the other issue when it comes to suffering is that suffering should actually strengthen our faith in God. I've heard some people say, I don't believe in God because of suffering. And I say, that doesn't make sense, and I'll tell you why. If you purchase a brand new Toyota, and you say to your friends, this is a beautifully made car, it's so wonderful, look at the interior, the designers knew what they were doing. And you're driving along and suddenly the accelerator gets stuck and you have a crash in an intersection, and a lot of people are killed, and all around there are people groaning and suffering, lying on the ground, covered in blood. Do you then say, Look at the suffering, therefore, nobody made my car. Now, that's an illogical leap. You don't go from, you know, someone made this beautiful car, suffering, and then no one made the car. You say something went radically wrong. That's the correct question. And so we can look at design and creation. We can see design from the atom of the universe, flowers, birds, trees, the sun, the moon, the stars, fruits, seasons, puppies, kittens male and female, everything has design. So we know God exists in the same way when we look at a painting, we know the painter exists. When we look at a building, we know the builder exists, no matter what. So we know things are designed, then we see suffering. We don't go to look at the suffering, therefore nobody made everything. We should say, rather, 
oh, something went radically wrong. And if you read the book of Genesis, you'll see what went wrong. We're in a rebellious uh, creation that turned its back on God, and we've had disease, pain, suffering, and death because we're, we're, we're in rebellion to God. We use his name as a cuss word. We use, use the name of Jesus and as, as a substitute for the S word to express disgust. No other human being has had that. So we're an enmity to God. We're enemy, enemies of God in our mind, as recognized on us, and all the things around us are evidence that the Bible is true when it says we're in a fallen creation. So suffering should strengthen our faith in the Word of God and drive us close to the Lord so that we're in a good relationship with Him. Well, and that is such an important key because, you know, not only do we probably most likely experience the greatest moments of ultimately growth in our life, spiritually and as individuals, as as suffering can teach us lessons and draw us closer to Christ. Because let's face it, on the average day when everything is going hunky-dory, we have the care in the world and we just go, you know, whistling along, most human beings, if they're honest with themselves, are not often crying out to God, but find the man who is facing insurmountable challenges, maybe a problem in a business, financial ruin, health concerns. It's amazing how quickly we will often, not always, but often, turn to God for his direction, his encouragement, his deliverance. And so there's much that can be said for suffering in terms of the development of the believer and our reliance upon him. Today we're visiting with best-selling author Ray Comfort. Ray's latest book is called How to Be Free from the Fear of Death, newly published by Broad Street Publishing. You can get it through local Christian bookstores here in the Bay Area. You can certainly order it through Amazon.com or through Ray's website, livingwaters.com. That's livingwaters.com. When we come back, how can we most effectively use this topic as a means of sharing our faith with others? And I know people who instantly recoil and think, you're not talking about telling people about Jesus and evangelism, are you? Oh, no, I... Yeah, I'll go to church, but I, you, that, yeah, I'm going to leave that up to the pastor. He's a little bit better equipped than I am. <laughs> Is that necessarily the case? Probably not. In fact, Scripture would tell us very different story when it comes to sharing our faith. How do we do that, especially in a day and an age when we have cancel culture all around us? Are we fearful of sharing our faith because we're fearful of being canceled? Ray Comfort addresses that issue as our conversation about his new book, How to Be Free from the Fear of Death, continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back to our conversation in a few more moments in our visit today with Ray Comfort. His latest book, How to Be Free from the Fear of Death, newly released by Broad Street Publishing. And again, you can order the book online at Ray's website, livingwaters.com. Ray, I'm, uh, I am fascinated by this subject matter because, as I mentioned in the get-go, it seemed to open up such a door, a window of opportunity for the church to be out and be bold and share our faith with so many people that suddenly have mortality on their lips when heretofore that was largely uh, only the case for people that were in their 70s and 80s. That said, talk to us about the ways in which this topic, and a broader degree, how we can as believers 
overcome that sense of timidity, that that fear of, I don't know, being canceled by culture when we share our faith, particularly in a day and an age like this when it seems to be so unpopular to be a believer? Well, I, I shared my faith for many years. I've been here preached thousands of times, but I've got to tell you, I always have a problem with fear. I battle fear all the time. Every Zacchaeus turns into a Goliath in seconds. I have a very overripe imagination. I can look at someone and sum up that they hate Christians from a hundred yards away, and they're going to kill me if I even mention the things of God. But what I have to do is ignore my fears. I'm like a firefighter who's signed up as a firefighter. If I arrive at a building and on the fifth story, I see a mum and the three kids, and she's holding on to them, clutching them, flames behind her. She's leaning out a window, screaming in terror. I can't say, I don't want to climb a 60-foot ladder and try and grab that woman and the kids. I'm going home to be with my wife. No, I'm signing up as a firefighter, and I have to ignore my fears. Would he rather be home with his wife and kids watching an old movie on TV? Absolutely. But he doesn't listen to his fears. He climbs that ladder and does that despite it. And the Bible uses a similar analogy. It says in the book of Jude, others making a difference, having compassion, pulling them from the fire, hating them the garments spotted by the flesh. So what I do to help me overcome my fears is I meditate on how regularly I think about the torments of hell and how horrific that would be for someone to end up in hell and it breaks my heart it motivates me you know love is a fountain of what we do could i ever get you to jump into a pond that's filled with ice that would kill you in three minutes if you're in it you say that i'd never do that what say a four-year-old boy fell into the pond and his feet wouldn't reach the bottom you know would you would you just let him drown and say of course not you'd forget about your flesh you'd jump into that pond despite how cold it was and just pull him out because love will do that and love will jump into the icy waters of personal evangelism. And there's a way to do it. You know, if you've got problems with fear when it comes to evangelism, don't pray for less fear, just pray for more love, because that's the problem. Love will get you to jump into a pond, and love will get you to walk into the personal waters of of evangelism. And my biggest key, my biggest thing to overcome my fears is one question, and and I thought of this probably 15, 20 years ago, when I meet a complete stranger and I want to witness to him, I can do it within about one minute without offense. And this is all I do. I say, hi, how you doing? He says, good. What's your name? Fred. Fred, I'm Ray. Hey, Fred, I've got a question for you. Do you think there's an afterlife? That's all I do. I don't mention God, Jesus, heaven, hell, sin, righteousness, judgment, any of those things that make him and me feel uncomfortable. I just ask for his opinion, and there's no offense. Do you think there's an afterlife? Most people will go very thoughtful and say, wow, that's the big question. I say, that's the biggest, isn't it? Do you think about it much? And they say, all the time. His all the time dissipates my fears. He's not anti-Christ. He hasn't stabbed me to death. He's a human being who thinks about this issue daily, tormented by the fear of death. I say, well, you know, do you think there's a heaven and a hell? He says, I don't know. So, do you believe in God? He says, yeah. So, what do you think of what the Bible says? You know, it says that Jesus has abolished death. And then, Craig, I often give an analogy to people, and I say, look, if a doctor's got a cure to cancer, should he just give the cure straight to a patient who doesn't know he's got cancer? He's got a guy in front of him who looks healthy, he's fit and young, Bear Island. Should he just give him the cure? Of course not. He's got to show him the disease on the x-rays 
to alarm him as to his true state. And when he begins to sweat, then the doctor says, hey, I've got a cure for you. If he sweats and sees his danger, that's when he'll appreciate and appropriate the cure. And sinners won't appreciate the gospel until we make them sweat a little, until we show them the x-rays. And the x-ray to show us our, 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 our condition is the Ten Commandments. Just take someone through the commandments. Say, have you lied? Have you stolen? Have you used God's name in vain? If you've looked with lust and you've committed adultery in your heart, say, Fred, I'm not judging you, but you've just told me you're a lying thief, a blasphemer, and an adulterer at heart. What's going to happen to you on Judgment Day? He says, I'll be guilty. Will you go to heaven or hell? Man, I'm heading for hell. I didn't realize that. I thought I was a good person. That's the x-ray. That shows him what he couldn't see. And that's when we bring out the cure of the gospel, and he'll appreciate it and appropriate it because he's seen his disease before you give him the cure. And for people that say, well, Ray, that's all well and good, but my, my fear is, what if they ask me a question I can't answer? Or, you know, I study the Word, but I have a real tough time memorizing Scripture. And so they ask a question, and now I can't counter it. Or maybe I run across somebody that turns out to be a Jehovah's Witness, for example, and they're just quoting Scripture right and left, and I feel ill-equipped. What do you say to that person? I wouldn't worry about that. You know, if you want to ride a bike... The bike's got to get moving. If you don't let that bike move, you're going to fall off. And if you don't do anything, just sit down in your fears, you're not going to go anywhere. And so you've got to start moving. Just grab a track and say, I'm going to give a track to somebody today. Or I'm going to ask someone if they think there's an afterlife. I'm going to do it. I'll not listen to my fears. Every question can be answered. You can always say to someone, well, here's my answer. I don't know. I don't know why God lets some people suffer and some not. I really don't know. But one thing I do know, once I was blind, but now I see. Once I didn't know if my sins were forgiven, now I know I'm forgiven. I've got everlasting life because I've got a promise from the God who cannot lie. And so every question has an answer. And if you meet a Jehovah's Witness and you don't want to talk to them because you don't want to get in an argument, just say, oh, well, nice to meet you and just move on. But I find... I hardly ever get into arguments with people because I use the same principle that Jesus used. I don't address the intellect, I address the conscience. If you address the intellect, you're going to have arguments. You're going to talk about whether Jonah could fit in a whale, whether Noah could fit in the ark, how big the animals were, did Jesus really walk on water and all this stuff, and you're going to just get enmity. But if you go to the conscience and say, do you think you're a good person, how many lies have you told? There's no argument. You've got the conscience agreeing with you. The, the work of the law is written on the heart, the conscience bearing witness. You've got an ally right in the heart of the enemy, the sinner's conscience. And you've got reason and logic. This person wants to live. They don't want to die. And if you've got an answer for them, it's, it's in their good sense just to listen. So if you, if you do what Jesus did, and that's why our ministry is called the way of the master, you'll find just so much easier. You can see this done on our YouTube channel, as I said before, over 200 million views. You'll see atheists backslide, people come to Christ, break down in tears of contrition, all on camera, and you'll say, this isn't as hard as I thought it would be because I'm using the right tools. I don't know if you've ever tried a hammer and a nail without a hammer, or you've tried to do something without the right tool. It's horrible. You know, you can't pull a nail out with tweezers. And so when you've got the right tools, when you use the commandments as Jesus used them, you'll find it so much easier because that's the purpose for which they were designed. Ray Comfort, his new book, How to Be Free from the Fear of Death, 
newly published by Broad Street, available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Ray's website, livingwaters.com. We appreciate Ray so much the time and the insights. God bless you. Hope to talk to you again real soon. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Lots to talk about on today's program, including a very fascinating bit of proposed bill out of Sacramento, AB 2098, that has the the potentiality of having a pretty severe cooling effect or chilling effect on freedom of speech in our state. We'll get to the reasons why this could be problematic a little bit later on. Bob Zadek will join us on the program. I want to lead off, though, as we mentioned about the Easter holiday. Trust you had a nice, enjoyable one. And if you went to church, either on Good Friday or on Easter Sunday, you didn't suffer arrest or persecution. Happens. In fact, it happened this past week in India. In the northern Indian province of Uttar Pradesh, which um, has a pretty significant population of Hindu nationalists, that recently apparently passed a anti-conversion law that is now mm-hmm. being used to prosecute and persecute Christians. We get more on the story from Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer and the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. And, and Brad, while this is slightly out of the wheelhouse from the standpoint of, of um, U.S.-related issues, it nevertheless ought to be a very stark reminder for all Christians of just how precarious our freedoms as believers can be. Oh, it certainly it certainly is. You know, we're looking at least at least thirty six Christians uh, were arrested from a church belonging to the Evangelical Church of India denomination, and uh, this this province, you know, these uh, is uh, one of the harshest uh, persecuting provinces there are. Uh, you mentioned the anti conversion law that was passed, uh, and the reason once again these Christians are being persecuted is because people Hindus are becoming Christians. And uh, it uh, has the, the the nation is alarmed by it uh, because there are so many becoming Christians. You know, while Christians make up only two point three percent of India's population, and the Hindus comprise about eighty percent, the the rest are mostly Muslim. Uh, the country's um, anti-conversion law laws presume that uh, Christians force uh, or give financial benefits to Hindus to convert them to Christianity. Of course, that's obviously not not the case. Uh, you. Uh, can't be at 2.3 percent of the population and have a strong arm you know, forcing tactics like you can in uh, many uh, harsh Muslim radical Muslim countries. Uh, so this is a definite concern. You know, just yeah, this last week, just north of uh, of India is Bangladesh, and we just succeeded in defending and protecting a, a pastor and his wife and kids from having to be sent back to Bangladesh after the other pastor from that church in Bangladesh. Uh, was killed by the radical Muslims. Uh, this pastor had a similar threat. He, he fled to Cambodia, then to the United States, and we uh, we just got the notice this week of his final uh, protection and allowance to to stay in the United States and not be sent back to almost certain death. So uh, things are very real in that part of the world, uh, Bangladesh, uh, India, and uh, we as Christians uh, cannot take uh, 
any of this for granted, our freedoms, especially when we see things heating up in countries like India. And I think it's also an important um, warning here, too. You know, we, we think of India as a fellow democratic society. They're English-speaking. Uh, they have advancements in technology and medicine that in many respects are, are equal to that of the United States. And yet, Prime Minister Modi, Narendra Modi, um, has oftentimes taken very hardline, harsh stands against Christian believers there. They have recently aligned themselves in support for Russia against, quite frankly, the rest of the modern world in relationship to uh, Russia's brutal attack on Ukraine, the, the, the carnage and killing which continues to this very moment. So it, it, it's sounding more and more like, although we traditionally think of India in the context of Gandhi and the struggle for independence from the United Kingdom following World War II as this great democratic society. But in fact, the story that is emerging, the picture that is emerging, is quite contrarian to the democratic principles that we hold dear. Oh, yeah. And, and people need to understand this is not an isolated incident uh, for India's Christians in 2021. Uh, that was the most violent year in the country's history. According to a report by the United Christian Forum, which recorded at least 486 violent incidents of Christian persecution uh, last year uh, in just just in India. Uh, so, uh, in fact, the the UCF uh, they cited uh, they said this was due to um, which uh, they, that such mobs um, uh, criminally threaten, physically assault people in prayer uh, before handing them over to police on allegations of forcible conversion. So uh, this is a, a serious problem, and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's going to become more of a problem uh, as, we, uh, as we move forward. And uh, hopefully uh, they'll have uh, leadership. Hopefully a, a sensibility will come upon uh, the, the nation of India. Um, but uh, it's, it's very concerning. And, of course, our recent alignment with Russia uh, is also of a serious concern as well. Now, events like this and this kind of persecution, obviously on the radar screen for believers, for organizations like Pacific Justice Institute, but I'm wondering at a global level, I mean, are there any discussions? Uh, is there any awareness going on, for example, uh, at the level of the United Nations? I know that our own State Department, for example, every year comes up with a list and it makes it available to the general public as to the nations that have um, significant um, records against religious freedoms, such as the nature of what we're talking about today. But what about the United Nations? To your knowledge, has there been, <coughs> pardon me, been any discussion or debate about this at that level? Uh, well, there there was during the, the prior administration, uh, during the Trump administration, actually there was a high priority placed on it, and there was even a a U.N. Uh, U.S.-sponsored, uh, you know, conference on religious freedom um, in, a, in, the, in the world. And uh, some headway was actually made in a number of countries um, that the uh, Trump administration targeted, like Morocco and others, that uh, Muslim countries in particular, uh, to uh, encourage them to adopt uh, religious freedom-friendly uh, uh, policies. Uh, but uh, recently, uh, no, there is, uh, there is, religious freedom has not been a major priority uh, in the last uh, year and a half, um, and or in the last, the last year. And so I think, uh, uh, but that's something that the UN should definitely could be taking up again. It partly depends on 
uh, who's uh, who's in the White House and, and what their priorities are. Uh, this is not a, a large priority. I don't believe uh, exhibited in this uh, administration, uh, but who knows? Maybe maybe it will uh, in the years uh, in the later part of his, uh, the, the presidential term. Yeah, well, let's certainly hope so. I mean, again, the, these stories are becoming more and more commonplace. Uh, even when I was there in India, and this is, my goodness, uh, eight, ten years ago, there are already reports of persecution against believers. Uh, some of you know that we have shared on the air about one of the gentlemen that we were working with in relationship to the uh, the Bible League, who had been a pastor in southern India, and um, he his wife was attacked uh, by someone on a motorcycle that threw acid at her, and uh, just a, a horrible state of affairs, and was all again based on um, you know significant Hindu nationalists that uh, are upset about any sense of um, people looking at their their you know their options from a, from a spiritual standpoint. And so, all you need to do is be discovered as being a Christian. And there are certain states, there are certain regions within India where it can indeed be up to life threatening. So we need to be in prayer for India. And, and certainly that God would intervene and would restore true democracy to that country, including religious freedom. Brad Dake is constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Information available on the web at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. You know, we hear stories all the time about the impact of day-to-day life, stresses that are brought upon relationships, marriage relationships, and suddenly you're on the rocks. Sometimes it's outside pressures and circumstances. Other times it's because we've gotten into a situation that was, well, quite frankly, unhealthy from the start. And with so many examples of how not to do it out there with the divorce rate that's as high outside of the church as it is within, where do we go to look and learn more about what the model of a healthy relationship is? And, and most importantly, how do we instill these values in children at an early enough age so that they don't make the mistakes we've made, so that they don't get into unhealthy relationships or make choices that are spurned on by, shall we say, uh, youth and puberty that oftentimes lead to very tragic Circumstances. Well, I get some insights on this topic from Valerie Navarrete, Director of Education with Real Options Obria Medical Clinics. Valerie, great to have you with us today. And I know that one of the focuses of Real Options has been to help provide young adults with better insights as to what a healthy versus unhealthy relationship looks like, and most importantly, uh, how to learn to develop the healthy types of relationships. Tell us a bit more on why this is important. Yeah, thanks for having me on today. Um, I think that parents today really recognize that our kids are going out into a world where um, they have a lot more hurdles to overcome than we've ever seen before. Um, especially kids now um, as they're returning back to school after having been in isolation for most of the last two years. Um, we're seeing that youth pastors, teachers, community leaders, and parents are all um, 
kind of just struggling to find a way to help students bridge the gap between where they were socially when the school closed and and where they should be now. Um, additionally, you know, uh, youth today have so many things they have to overcome from the culture at large. Um, our curriculum is um, it's a it's great. We uh, share it with our students. It's interactive. It's trauma informed, and it's you know, not to put a label on it, but it's kind of unlike anything else out there. Um, we address topics of self-discovery, boundaries, internet safety, healthy relationship foundations, life mapping, um, how to cultivate whole person health starting now when they're young so that they have those skills um, as they grow up and into adulthood. Our hope and our intention, of course, is that um, the sexual risk avoidance education that we bring to our kids isn't just going to minimize the effects associated with sex um, and unhealthy relationships, but also just avoid them altogether. You know, we used to, not that many years ago, talk about the importance of abstinence education um, way back in the Stone Age. Well, it took place in the family, in the house. And now today, more and more, the school seems to be supplanting that very critical parental role, but you use the term sexual avoidance, and, and I'm wondering how that differs from um, many of the current day sex education programs, particularly in public schools, that don't focus on abstinence education or avoidance per se, but just simple reduction. What's the difference? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, I, I do remember the days of abstinence education, and uh, as much as I hate to say it, it's become kind of a dirty word in the schools. Um, you know, they, it's seen as outdated. So um, what we've done is we've uh, found this curriculum that is um, trauma-informed and uh, extensively researched, and um, it, it operates on the assumption that our youth have the ability to avoid these risks altogether. Um, these risks being things like unplanned pregnancy and sexually transmitted infections. Uh, our model is different um, than the sexual risk reduction, because sexual risk reduction, which is what we primarily see in the schools, especially in California, um, just help students mitigate the risks associated with um, sex. So again, um, how do we handle unplanned pregnancy? How do we handle um, sexually transmitted infections? Instead of going back to square one and saying, you know, you don't have to expose yourself to these risks. There's a different way. There's a better way. And um, part of what we do is we help educate students in what that looks like. Yeah, I mean, I suppose if you're going to be going for a hike on a mountain, uh, you'd probably like to go in such a fashion that you don't reduce the risk of falling off a cliff and getting crushed on rocks below you, but rather eliminate it. <laughs> and and though sadly, it seems as if it's it's almost it's almost as if there's been a white flag wave. The the notion that well, you know, we we will never convince our children not to experiment, and there are certainly too many influencers in the world around them about them that that egg them on. So. You know, if you can't beat them, join them. In other words, if you can't teach them um, outright abstinence, then just teach them how to reduce it. But as you're pointing out, there is a viable alternative. The problem is you have to teach it to them, and sadly, often in the public schools, most certainly, that does not happen. 
Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that we love doing is that we get to engage in our community. So, like you said, you know, it's hard to get this information um, into the public schools for lots of different reasons. Um, but what we're trying to do is um, work with community groups, summer camps, um, such as like SAM Camp. We're going to be working with SAM Camp this summer. We're really excited. Um, and we're also really, really excited. This is the first time ever that Real Auctions is going to host our own summer workshop student series. Um, so we will be offering these healthy education, um, healthy relationship education classes ourselves um, in the weeks of July, July 11th through the 15th and July 18th through the 22nd. Um, and so if you are a parent, a youth leader, a community leader, a grandparent, um, or just someone, you know, maybe you're a passionate uh, aunt or uncle and you want to see uh, your loved ones and the students in our community get engaged with this curriculum, it would be an awesome opportunity. Our registration link just posted to our page. Um, so you can easily register at uh, Friends of Real Auctions website under the upcoming events tab. Um, and additionally, um, you can reach out to us at education at realauctions.net. Um, I just want a real quick reminder that all of our education programming is free, um, free to all of the groups that I just mentioned. So if you in any way feel like this is something that your students could take advantage of, we would love uh, to get in touch with you. Absolutely. Um, and I would also want listeners to be mindful yeah. of the fact that, uh, you know, th there's expenses in, in facilitating an educational program of this sort. And it's, it's sad that it's necessary to counter uh, a lot of the either lack of information or misinformation that many children have today, but this is the reality in which we face. The good news is that Friends of Real Options, uh, Real Options Obria Clinics, rather, is offering these educational programs. And again, if you want to get more information, how to get your students signed up, how to get involved in support, uh, two easy ways. First, you can go to the website, friendsofrealoptions.net, and look under the events tab. That's friendsofrealoptions.net, or simply uh, shoot off an email to Valerie at education at friendsofrealoptions.net. That's education at friendsofrealoptions.net. Valerie Navarrete, Director of Education with Real Options Obrio Medical Clinics, thanks so much for the update. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.